Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. Battles at Verdun exhausted our forces like an open wound. Moreover, it was obvious that in any case, the enterprise had become hopeless. The battlefield was a regular hell and regarded as such by the troops. Feldmarschall Paul von Hindenburg, Verdun, 1916. Hello, and welcome to the Battle of Verdun podcast, episode 12, Wastage. So, we've been active on the Facebook page, and that is awesome. Shoutouts this episode go out to Jason, David, Safer, and Matthias, as well as Dritte Lothringische Feld Artillery Regiment 960 and Centenaire de la Première Guerre Mondiale, 1914-1918. Awesome stuff, folks. Love it, and thank you, especially for the feedback. All right. On June 15th, 1916, after two days of rain, General Charles Mongin, commanding the French Second Corps, launched his umpteenth attack against the German shell hole line between Fleury and Fort Souville. Some 400 French guns opened up and pounded the German line, churning the muddy earth and disinterring bodies and body parts while adding new ones to the mix. That morning of the 15th, the men attacking were from the 37th Infantry Division, commonly known as the African Division. It was composed largely of colonial troops from Algeria and Morocco, and the 37th would be the unhappy record holder for the unit that served the most tours of duty at Verdun. Total of five. The 37th had been one of the units rushed up to the crumbling line on the right bank on February 23rd. The division was typically treated carelessly by its European French commanders. Now under the command of Mongin, an ex-colonial officer who loved his colonial troops, but honestly didn't care what color his troops were as long as he could use them for an attack, the men of the 37th slogged forward as French artillery went in over their heads. They weaved around and through the shell holes as best they could, each man packed with his rifle, ammunition, and grenades. But the Germans weren't out of the fight exhausted as they were. 
As the men of the 37th moved forward, German shells screamed in at them, blowing bloody gaps through their ranks. The attack of July 15th drowned in the shell holes of no man's land. They went in again on July 16th and again on July 17th until losses were so heavy any further attacks were canceled. No ground was gained. At the end of July, the 37th Division would be rotated out of the Verdun sector to be put back together again. The division would be back in late October. Looking back at the Battle of Verdun after the fact, especially us, 99 years later, we know the Germans' last plausible attempt at breakthrough and victory came on July 11th, 1916. We can also see that from July onwards, the German position began to crumble from their frontline trace to air and artillery superiority to the morale of the troops. But on the ground, in French HQs, just behind the trenches and shell craters, the Poilus didn't know that. They worried the next German attack might be coming and that it might bring with it a breakthrough. So the struggle continued through July. It was impossible to stop the battle. The men of the German 5th Army may have shot their last effective bolt on July 11th and 12th, but where their advance ended was where they would stand. From 5th Army command on down, names like Fleury and Diamant now carried as much meaning as Verdun itself. Maybe more, because the Germans had taken these ruined places and now held them. After all the men who had been shot down or blasted apart, torn open and holding their guts as they screamed for their mothers in vain, these places would not be given up just because doing so would be more militarily sensible. It was a thing of desperate, maniacal honor. For the French, of course, on the other side, these German pigs sat on French soil. That soil was all the more sacred for the tens of thousands of their brothers who lay in it, on it, or scattered over it. So many men had paid the ultimate price to hold the line at Bois de Car, Beaumont, Douaumont, Les Mortons, and Fleury that it was unquestionable that these burnt and bloodied patches of earth were to be recaptured. Gut que gut whatever the cost. So the mill on the Meuse ground on almost as violently as ever, with both French and German locked in a chokehold cycle of attack and counterattack. These attacks went from operations aimed at breakthrough to more local affairs designed to, quote, mop up an enemy pocket, or particularly between the gray-stained soil of Fleury and the Ouvrage de Théomont, or, quote, the conquest of the point of departure for an attack, end quote, as described in Georges Blund's Verdun. But with the Germans on the defensive and the two sides slowly trading battlefield superiority, casualties did begin to lessen. During July, the French 2nd Army took some 30,000 casualties, while the German 5th Army shed 
another 25,000. For the French, it was half of what they'd lost in June. The appetite of the ogre, as Captain Augustin Cochin had written during the struggle for Les Mortons, was indeed insatiable. The mill on the Meuse wanted casualties. It wanted bodies with which to sow its sorrowful harvest. The monster that churned the ground north of Verdun would take losses and casualties however it could get them. And it had reach. During the summer, it began to snake its tentacles out from the battlefield towards the men who oversaw the battles fought there. Verdun might not be able to make physical casualties out of them, but it would settle for making them political ones. In June 1916, the first political potshots were fired at the mighty Papa Joffre himself. He'd had it good for just under two years. Since the war start, all of France's notoriously antagonistic political parties had put aside their views and come together in a Union Sacrée, sacred union, to prosecute the war with Germany as united Frenchmen. Part of this Union Sacrée meant ceding a dangerous amount of power to General Joseph Joffre, to the point where it can be argued he had near dictatorial control over the military and the northern part of France impacted by the war. From 1914 to 1916, no one criticized Joffre publicly. He was Papa Joffre, whose singularly-minded, imperturbable calm had overseen the miracle on the Marne. The now-dead General Joseph Galliani would have argued that point. But no one could say anything about the 454,000 Frenchmen killed between August and December 1914. Nor could they say anything about the several failed offensives of 1915 that added another 391,000 killed by the end of that year. Joffre had convinced his government to trust him and his judgment completely and without question. And they did it. Civilian officials weren't allowed to ask too many questions about the war and its conduct. You took the BS that GQG gave you and went on your bloody way. Joffre was supreme. His calm face, ever calm and rested because he took a nap every afternoon and was promptly in bed at 9 p.m. with strict orders to never be disturbed, was an immovable mask. So that June of 1916, the folks who'd all worked together so far broke apart over Verdun. The French government in power, under Raymond Poincaré, fed what information the army gave it and parroted it back to everyone else. The opposition, though, had had enough and agitated for what would be the first secret session of the government. The meeting started with André Maginot, himself wounded at Verdun back in 1914, and now a parliamentary deputy 
with major street cred. Coming out and stunning all by saying that basically Joffre sucked at his job. Maginot pointed to 1914 and the inability to win, to the stalemate of 1915, and to the unfolding potential disaster at Verdun. Why has Joffre let himself be so surprised on February 21st, 1916? What had he really done about Verdun since then? And what had he really accomplished since 1914? Maginot's remarks released a lot of pent-up tension in the secret session. There followed a lot of political wailing and gnashing of teeth. At the end of the week-long meeting, nothing concrete emerged against Joffre. He would keep his job, and frankly, he didn't even know the meeting had been held. But many politicians walked away feeling much more critical of Papa Joffre. With those emotions and tongues loosened, June 1916 was the beginning of the end for General Joseph Joffre. July gave way to August, which opened with a German attack aimed yet again at Fort Suvi. The attack was a local one, but due to its location and objective, still scared the bejesus out of the French. The Germans pushed themselves into a new salient a few hundred meters deep. When they could do no more, the men stayed out of sight in their hopelessly exposed shell holes and suffered massive daily barrages from French artillery. The French Second Army noticed a definite change in their German enemies. There was less strength in the Germans' attacks, less boom in their artillery, and the French air forces were masters of the sky over Verdun. The change was definitely noticed when Mongin kept hammering away, and on August 18th, his poilus wrenched back Fleury from the Bosch. As these battles ground on, two men on the German side didn't get pinged with political pot shots like Joffre. They got bowled over with broadsides. First to get hit was General Schmidt von Knobelsdorf, Chief of Staff of the German 5th Army. After July 12th, 5th Army was definitively put on a defensive posture at Verdun. Von Knobelsdorf wanted to keep attacking. As surely as German troops were being diverted to the Somme, the French were doing the same. Von Knobelsdorf wanted his victory. No amount of German blood would deter him. If they kept pushing, they'd break through. At the Somme, von Falkenhayn had decreed that every inch of ground was to be fought for. By August, the Anglo-French push there had turned into an attritional slugfest that rivaled Verdun. General von Falkenhayn had become bored with Verdun when things there had bogged down in the spring. Now he was doing the same at the Somme. In mid-August, he asked 5th Army if there was any chance to do anything at Verdun, citing his usual vague phrases about aggressive defense and the like. Von Falkenhayn had even met with von Knobelsdorf, curiously, while the crown prince was away, 
to discuss any such opportunities. Little Willie felt he saw the same behind-his-back plans being cooked up, and he was, fairly enough, getting sick of it. Some of the Fifth Army leadership wanted to keep pushing, to keep morale up, an attack to show the Germans had plenty of fight left in them. Others voiced the opinion that any new fighting would just be more of the same. General von Falkenhayn came back with an order for Fifth Army to do what it thought best. The stuff of dynamic leadership there. Crown Prince Willem, as commander of the Fifth Army, did what he thought best. His troops remained on the defensive. He also summoned von Knobelsdorf. Schmidt, I've had just about enough of you, said the Crown Prince. Wondering, do you have a heavy coat? No, your highness. Why? Because your ass is going to Russia. Get the hell out of my sight. Von Knobelsdorf shipped out to a corps command and permanent obscurity on August 23rd, having been relieved of his duties by the crown prince. Any grand hopes he had for himself bled to death at Verdun. Next was General von Falkenhayn himself. He had been so vague and so wrong on everything for so long that it all finally caught up with him. He had plenty of political enemies back in Germany whispering intrigues into the ear of the Kaiser, and it began to stick. The last mistake von Falkenhayn made as Minister of War and commander of all German military forces was telling everyone that Romania wouldn't join the Allies at least until the fall of 1916. Yeah, Romania declared war on the Central Powers on August 27, 1916, sincerely shocking the German leadership. With that, calls for von Falkenhayn's head went out, and he offered his resignation to the Kaiser on August 29th. The Kaiser accepted. Von Falkenhayn was shipped out to deal with the Romanians and his own permanent obscurity. On September 2nd, von Falkenhayn's replacements arrived on the Verdun front to review the conditions there. The new commanders on the Western Front were none other than Feldmarshal Paul von Hindenburg and his chief of staff, General Erich Ludendorff, the German dream team from the Eastern Front. Feldmarshal Paul von Benekendorf und Hindenburg and General Erich Ludendorff were indeed quite the pair. They had been paired together to save the forming Eastern Front in 1914 at the Battle of Tannenberg, when von Hindenburg had been recalled out of retirement to take over the German Eighth Army. In truth, he wanted to be called back. He had written to Army Command in August, saying, You know, if you guys need anything or anyone, I'm right here. Right here being bored. Like, really bored. 
Von Hindenburg was another guy who personified the Prussian military ideal. Even at 68 years old in 1914, he remained a grim, tall, and imposing figure in his uniform and his massive and you know, pretty manly mustache. For real, man, check it out. But he didn't just look the part. He was an extremely capable leader who would work seamlessly with his chief of staff. Ludendorff, for his part, had also brought a lot to the table in 1914, all except for a fun attached to his last name. And that aristocratic touch meant a lot in the Imperial German Army. But he was the brains behind the stunning German victory at Liège, Belgium, in August 1914, when the supposedly impregnable forts there were torn open by 305 millimeter mortars. For that, Ludendorff had won the Borle Merit, Germany's highest military award. Stocky, with typically close-cropped hair and glaring eyes, Ludendorff cultivated a purposely unfriendly attitude that predictably won him no friends. From Tannenberg through the summer of 1916, Team HL ran Germany's war effort in Russia. When they were assigned to take over for von Falkenhayn, they were taking over not just military command, but incredible political power as well. They would play a huge role in the remaining history of the Western Front and the Great War, but for Verdun, their main contribution was ordering an absolute halt to any German activity there other than that of a strict defense. The two men inspected the German lines at Verdun and were shocked by the nightmare they found on both banks of the Meuse. Check it out, E. Von Hindenburg said to his wingman, I'm, I'm all about that artillery base, no shrapnel. Know what I'm saying? But this place seriously sucks. And Ludendorff replied, Yeah, I hear you. I'm not about this battle over done life. Mm-mm. So what Von Hindenburg really said was that quote from the beginning of the episode, that Verdun was a regular hell and regarded as such by the troops. Ludendorff agreed by simply stating that Verdun was hell. Any offensive plans, even local ones, were stopped immediately. There would be no more German attacks at Verdun. On the French side, General Pétain stepped in again at Verdun. He did so by finally exercising his full authority as the commander of Army Group Center. In one instance, Pétain simply bypassed General Nivelle and came down hard on General Mangin after one of Mangin's brutal and wasteful counterattacks. But even as he cussed out Mangin, Pétain used that paternal tone that he always used in his reprimand along these lines. Listen, Charlie, 
I know you're motivated and a capable guy, but these attacks have to stop. From now on, we're going to do this my way. It was Beton's time to launch the counteroffensive he had promised back in February. On the Somme, General Joffre had failed to break through as promised, and the political heat on him was now beginning to burn. Joffre needed a win somewhere. He pushed Pétain for an attack at Verdun. Pétain agreed, but it would be done his way. And by his way, it meant with him in charge and with massive artillery support. And that would take some time to put together. Of August and September, General Philippe Pétain would later say that nothing of great importance had happened at Verdun. But the men on the ground would have disagreed. Fighting and artillery battles continued, and with them, the casualties. It was what the British would call wastage, the steady toll of casualties from just being stationed at the front line. From September 3rd through the 17th, General Monger was allowed to launch assault after assault in the area of Fleury village again to expand French holdings there and to secure, quote, the point of departure for an attack, end quote. These attacks were conducted by battalion-sized elements and any gains were in the hundreds of meters. Casualties for these Monger operations were mercifully light this time around. When these assaults around Fleury wrapped up, a steady silence came to Verdun. For the first time in seven months, the guns went quiet. This time it wasn't a trick gas attack. It was real quiet. There would be flare-ups as one side's infantry exposed themselves to the other as the days merged into October. But for the most part, the eerie silence dominated. At French 2nd Army HQ, Pétain, General Robert Nivelle, and General Mongin were hard at work and actually working together on bringing Pétain's vision of a counterattack to life. Nivelle and Mongin had agreed to come online with Pétain's strategy. Pétain would have command of the operation and would provide the overarching strategy of what he wanted to see happen. Nivelle would work out the details of everything utilizing his background as an artilleryman and continued developing his concept called the Rolling Barrage. Mongin, the psychotic tiger in the cage, would execute the plan once it was ready. Even Joffre helped, and mind you, he needed to. Divisions in 2nd Army that had been shot to pieces but still remained in trenches were rotated and replaced with fresh units. A few extra divisions were allotted for the new attack, and a steady river of supplies and artillery shells flowed into Verdun. With the careful scraping of all available resources and men at hand, Second Army began to assemble a strong offensive force. So, right here, we're at a good point where I can leave you guys here and then pick up where we left off the next episode, obviously. But, as this is the Battle of Verdun, 
I have to end this episode by covering yet another tragedy that occurred on the battlefield. Underneath Fort Davin, on the right bank, lay a light railway tunnel, some 1,300 meters long, known simply as the Tavan Tunnel. It was a single-track railway line that ran from Verdun to Metz in peacetime. With the war and the deadlocked front, it had been cut off since 1914. With its railway function halted and the battle raging to its north, the tunnel became a safe transit station for French troops in the vicinity. Relatively safe, anyway. The tunnel was largely dark, dank, and really just nasty inside. On one side of the tunnel were bunks for resting troops, first aid stations, where surgeons did their gory work in conditions so unsanitary they'd make a medieval medicine man cringe, and a few unit command posts from which uninsulated electric wires ran out along the walls. Men who leaned against the walls and came into contact with the wires were sometimes electrocuted. On both sides of the tunnel were gutters, which men inside used as their latrine, both for number one and number two. With the tunnel packed with deserters, stragglers, furniture, ammunition, makeshift buildings, and even teams of supply-laden donkeys, you simply leaned against the wall, watch out for the wires, and did your business. Occasionally, someone would try to sluice the filth out with water, but that was rare. The stench was appalling. But the Tavan Tunnel, for those who'd been under bombardment outside, offered the very literal mountain over your head for protection if you were in it. So we've got a tunnel packed past danger capacity with men, ammunition, live electric wires, all while under German bombardment at its eastern end. Yes, for those of you new to the Verdun story, you have probably guessed it. On the night of September 4th, the inevitable occurred. Historians believe it started with a load of rockets catching on fire. The rockets must have fired off into boxes of stored grenades, which exploded and ignited nearby fuel cans. Within a flash, the tunnel was rocked by a massive explosion that ripped men apart where they stood or as they tried desperately to get out. Burning debris and body parts shot out of the exits. Right after the explosion, with both ends of the tunnel now open to provide ventilation, an equally massive fire engulfed everything inside the tunnel. Men, wretched figures, ran out the eastern end and towards the front where German shells blew them apart. The fire burned everything inside the tunnel until September 7th, the first time anyone could think of getting inside. Almost needless to say, there were no survivors inside the tunnel. A rescue party that entered saw at one point what looked like a pile of charred bodies, but when touched, they disintegrated into dust 
It was estimated that some 500 men died as a result of the disaster. The dead included the entire staff of a brigade, commander included. French army leadership quickly hushed up news about the Tafan Tunnel. They didn't want the Germans finding out, and they also didn't want their poilus finding out. French morale had risen noticeably over the summer, and something like this would be devastating. The dead were listed as missing with no details. And now we'll really wrap up. Next time, we move into some big doings. France is about to get its chance at payback. And France will execute accordingly. So for some admin news, there may be a longer than usual gap between this and the next episode. As I have an educator's licensure exam in like three weeks. And truth be told, I haven't dedicated all that much time to studying for it. So I'll get the next episode out as soon as possible. Promise. Battle Over Dumb podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and FeedBurner. Reviews on iTunes are a big help. And if you folks out there have any questions, please email me directly at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. Again, thanks as always. And talk to you folks again soon. Take care. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.